Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I said last week, and I think this is a, a fairly defensible position, that there's a sense in which the book of Romans, as we've been studying it, actually ends at the end of chapter 15 with that final benediction, may the God of peace be with you all, amen. As you go into chapter 16, you see a bunch of names, all of these greetings scrolling along. Uh, If you think of it that way, you might think book of Romans ended at the end of chapter 15, and now the credits are running. It's like the end of the movie, you're seeing all the names of the people involved, and it's time to let the credits roll. The interesting thing is, it used to be at the movies that this is, this is where you left. Right? And as soon as the credits were done, the movie was over, and you tried to get out, get to your car. I'm referring, of course, to when we used to go to the movies collectively at movie theaters. But we stopped doing that. We learned that that was not the way to treat the credits, and we started staying through the credits. Why? What changed? It was post-credit scenes. Right? Suddenly, all the good stuff was after the credits, and you had to stick around in order to see that stuff. And the interesting thing is, if Romans 16 is the credits, the Apostle Paul anticipates Hollywood by a couple thousand years and gives us a post-credits scene that's actually really good and full of conflict. But we're going to look at that next week. And this morning, we're going to look at the credits. We're going to look at the list of names, because even the credits here have something to teach us. So in the text that we're going to be looking at, before I read it, just keep in mind, you're going to see kind of, you might think of it as three sections. So in the first section, which is just the first two verses, there's going to be a commendation to Phoebe, who is the person carrying the letter to the Romans. In the big second middle section, this is where you're getting greetings from Paul to people who are at the Roman church. So it's going to be people who are members of the church or people visiting, people involved in some way in that community. And then right at the end, we're going to skip down to verses 21 through 23, and we're going to see the greetings that are from the people in Paul's circle writing in Corinth, and they just want to get in some greetings at the end of the letter to greet the people on the other end in Rome. So that's what we'll be looking at. So hear the word of the Lord. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Cancrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponitas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian, 
Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord Trephina and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And skipping down to verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Father, we ask your blessing on these words as we study them, as we contemplate their meaning. We pray that as the saints of the ancient church were knitted together in this web of greeting and hospitality, that we too would be drawn close to one another in Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So it's not a genealogy exactly, but it is a list of names, and it's a list of names mostly of people that, that all we know about them is what we've just read, and for most of them, that doesn't really amount to much. But we do get some interesting insights into the process. For example, the epistle writing process, the way that works. Uh, Phoebe, who's mentioned at the beginning, is, is almost certainly mentioned in this way because she is the one who is carrying the letter to Rome. She's traveling from Corinth, she lives in Cincrea, which is a port city of Corinth, and she's going to take the letter to the Romans. And that's the way that these letters were delivered. And we also learned something interesting at the end. You thought this letter was written by Paul, but suddenly there's this guy named Tertius who says he wrote the letter and that he greets you. And you wonder, who's Tertius? Well, Tertius is Paul's secretary. He is his, uh, here's the fancy word, amanuensis. He is the guy that Paul dictates, I'm sorry, dictates his letters to. Uh, it was not uncommon for people to have others who would do the writing for them. And in Paul's case, it might have had something to do with his eyesight. Because when he does add in his own hand a note to one of his other epistles, he actually points out kind of the, the, the largeness of the hand with which he writes, kind of pointing out his, his odd handwriting. So we get a little glimpse behind the scenes here of what was going on, not only with, with the writing of epistles, but also in the life of the ancient church. And it can be a little bit surprising to us. The church, oftentimes we think of it, we think of the ancient church as kind of the, the, the church of the superstars, the apostles, these great heroes of the faith. And now suddenly all of these names are introduced into the picture. Uh, the record is suddenly filled with these people that we hadn't heard of before, almost anonymous individuals who turned out to be essential to the life of the church. It was that way then, it's this way now. The church is built up and it's nurtured and it's supported by those who serve with us. Not by the big names, not by the superstars, but by these people. The people who you only see glimpsed in passing here in a passage like this. Back in the early 90s, when I first went to grad school, one of the incoming students uh, who was coming with us, we weren't called freshmen, but we were like first year 
grad students. Uh, I had written basically nothing at that time. He had written the screenplay to a movie that, that we'd all heard of, um, but we'd never heard of him. Completely mysterious. His name I, I'd never heard of before. It was kind of weird to realize that a guy who had written this thing that everybody had heard of that was kind of famous, that you had never heard of him before, despite the fact that his work was essential to it. He was an older guy, obviously, probably almost as old as I am now at that time, but that wasn't unusual in that program. Most of the people that you rubbed elbows with were, were anonymous. They'd never really done anything worthy of fame, but it was strange to think that someone who had was equally unacknowledged, anonymous. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the names here are people who really didn't do much because how could they have done much if they didn't really get mentioned in the New Testament? These are people who made great contributions, great sacrifices. The reality is, though, that the church, like any community, is not built by, by, by one great hero, but it's built by many people. Communities are built by communities of people. That's how it works. The movies are like that. Right? We think about the, the credits and the purpose for it. The reason you've got all those credits at the end is that a movie is made by a community. And most of those people are unknown to you. Like your favorite movies, the, the movies you've seen time and time again. If we started list, listing, what, like, who was the gaffer? You'd be like, yeah, I don't even know what that is, let alone who it was. Right? These are people whose work was essential to our enjoyment, but we just don't know their names. The interesting thing is, unlike writing a book, which you can do all by yourself, you can't make a movie by yourself. It can only be made in a community. The church is like that as well. You can't make a church by yourself. The church is necessarily a community that is built by a community. And in Romans 16, you get a glimpse of the community of the church in Rome. Not a list of every single person, but, but a list of a lot of different people whose different work and different roles contributed to the life of the church. Now, some of them are famous. Right? You go through those names, you recognize a couple. Timothy jumps out. Timothy's pretty famous. He's got a couple of epistles named after him. And when you're going through all of these names, as, as I just have, uh, Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, and then you get to Timothy, you think, you lucked out in the lottery of names. Right? Timothy's a pretty easy name compared to some of those. Timothy jumps out. Uh, you've heard of Prisca and Aquila. Maybe you're more familiar with Priscilla and Aquila, but it's the same people who are being mentioned. They get quite... Uh, Extensive coverage in Acts chapter 18. That was a married couple who uh, we'll talk about in a moment. So you've heard of them. But for the most part, these are people you've never heard of before. These are people who you have no idea what their life story is. All we can really do is speculate based on what's mentioned here. And what's mentioned here isn't much. And yet, from the way Paul speaks about them, it's clear that they were at the heart of the church. It's clear that they were important, that they were essential to the church. So if you look at some of them, we won't go through each and every person here, but there are some interesting notes here. If you start with Phoebe right at the beginning, this is kind of fascinating. So Phoebe is a person who Paul describes as having been a patron. So probably given the fact that she was a patron and also able to travel, we're talking about someone 
pretty well off, maybe someone who worked in trade or something like that, but she was a pillar of the church there in the port city of Corinth. She was someone described as a servant, and the word for servant there is diaconus, which is the same word we translate sometimes as deacon, sometimes as servant. Paul refers to himself at times as a diaconus as well. This is a person whose involvement in the church, it's not just showing up. This is a person who is building the church, who is ministering to the needs of the church, which might explain why she's been trusted to carry this important letter. And yet, despite all of that, what we know about Phoebe is what we see here and nothing more. We can speculate, and people do, about what this might mean and and what her life might have been like, but that's what it is. It's speculation. Even if you continue with Prisca and Aquila, what we know is a lot less than you might think. So Prisca is the formal version of the name, and Priscilla is the diminutive. So it's kind of not the nickname exactly, but it's sort of like if your parents named you Thomas, but everybody calls you Tommy, that's the relationship there. But Prisca and Priscilla, same person, and she was born in Italy. She was a Roman, but she was married to this guy, Aquila, who was a Jewish Christian from Asia Minor. He came from this place called Pontus. So they were fellow workers, Paul says. They worked along with Paul. In fact, not only were they fellow workers in the church, but literally they did the same job. They were all tent makers. So that when Paul first encountered them, he lived with them and worked with them. And that's how he sustained himself. And so as a result of that, they had a relationship together. He says here that they risked their necks for him. And as dramatic as that is, we're not sure what he's talking about. The Bible doesn't record that incident, but it was apparently so noteworthy that everybody in the church, the the Gentile churches, they were all grateful to these people for what they had done on Paul's behalf. But again, that, that feat, we don't know the details. We can only wonder. They hosted a church in their house. In fact, wherever they went, they traveled all over the place. They were always active in building the church in that area. They were active obviously in hosting, but, but they did more than that. When they encountered this young guy, Apollos from Alexandria, who was preaching Jesus, but he didn't have all his facts correct. He didn't understand the full gospel. They actually took him under their wing and they discipled him so that he could make a contribution to the church as well. So these were people who devoted themselves to nurturing the church, Prisca and Aquila. Epinetus, don't know. Paul says, my beloved, he was the first convert in Asia, but that story isn't recorded. We have a number of people who are, we're told, worked hard. Uh, Mary is one of them. If you skip down, you'll see uh, some others. Let's see, Persis is one of them who worked hard. Uh, Trophina and Trophosa, these are all females, by the way, Persis included. These are all women in the church who worked hard, and interestingly, The word he uses for for worked hard is not the same that he would use to describe someone as a fellow worker. So when he refers to people as fellow workers, that's synergon. So it's it's together, sen, like synthesis. And then ergon is work, like ergonomics, that kind of thing. So people who work together, synergon. But the word he uses to describe their contribution is a word that's more like toil. It's like they they weren't just fellow workers. They were toilers. They worked really hard on behalf of the church. And so he recognizes that work. 
Several people are referred to as beloved or, or my beloved in the Lord, uh, approved in Christ in the case of Apelles. There's several families that are called out, members of the family of Aristobulus. You also have members of the family of Narcissus. And these are probably situations where in that household there were believers. And then Narcissus or Aristobulus were like famous are prominent people, and thus they have these large households. They themselves may not have been believers, but members of their families were. But again, we don't know this for sure. It's speculation. It's, it's an inference that's drawn. You'll see several times Paul will refer to people as kinsmen. Uh, when he does this, that's a little ambiguous as well. It may be that they are family members, somehow related to him, like cousins or something, But it's also possible that this is just Paul's way of distinguishing uh, Jews from Gentiles, that these are Jewish Christians. And so he's referring to them as my kinsmen to acknowledge that they're kind of from the Jewish side of the family. That may be the case, in which case that's kind of interesting because it reinforces something we talked earlier, which is that the unity of Jew and Gentile in Christ is not a unity that that destroys the, the cultural identity of the people. Like they don't stop being Jews because they become Christians, even though in Christ there is no Jew and Gentile. It's more complex than that. There's a unity that that diversity has been brought into. We have uh, other interesting cases. Andronicus and Junia, uh, these are people who are described as not only kinsmen, but fellow prisoners with Paul. But we're not sure which imprisonment this is a reference to. The famous imprisonments are still to come. We don't know at what time he would have been in prison with Andronicus and Junia. Interestingly, until recently, it would have been Andronicus and Junius. But the controversy is over whether Junia is female or Junius is male. So you can see even getting into the details of the names. We're not even sure in some cases which is which. But these are people who had converted to Christ even before Paul had, and he says are well-known to the apostles. Some people argue well-known among the apostles as well. But again, we don't know. We don't have any sense of who they were, no record of their ministry, nothing but speculation, really. Rufus is fascinating. Rufus is chosen in the Lord, and his mother was like a mother to Paul. There's a warmth there, a closeness that it'd be interesting to know more about, but we don't. We get at the end a few groups of, of names, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and all the believers who are with them. And the same thing again, Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus. Again, groups of people together, probably in house churches or something in that network in Rome. So a lot of different people being singled out by Paul in this way. And then At the end, the people who are with him jump in, and they start sending greetings. Timothy, we know, but Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, no idea. Tertius, mentioned only here. Gaius, interesting. He's a host of the church, as well as to Paul, but this is all we know about him. Erastus seems to have had a prominent place, a treasurer. He was the steward of the city. He might be mentioned one other time in 2 Timothy, but that's it. And then Quartus. Who were they? We don't know. Don't know. Just as if you were go, to go back at any point in the history of the church and you were to look at, at people who were prominent, people who made sacrifices, 
in order to build the church, in order to spread the gospel, and the vast majority of their stories are forgotten. To us, though not to God. But when you look at that, and you consider all the people who were part of this ministry, you begin to realize that it looks a little bit different than maybe it does in your imagination. It's not the Apostle Paul and occasionally a helper going around building the church alone. Instead, there are many people, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, many different stations in life who are actively working to build the church. It's interesting, that service is what builds the church, right? Church service, not church office, is what builds the body. There's some lessons that we can learn from this. And the church of Christ is a community, and it's built by a community. When you think what it is that these people have in common, why it is that these are the people who are being singled out in this way, it's interesting. It's not because of their office, It's not because these were the important ones. It's not because these were the ones in power. Rather, it's because of their service. They're singled out because of their work, because of their sacrifices. They're here for their contributions, not just for recognition. Hard work, personal sacrifice are what Paul is highlighting. The way in which these people, like him, have suffered, have contributed to the cause of Christ. These are the people who serve with us. And a passage like this should remind us to be mindful of those people, to think about those people, to think about those who serve with us. We can talk in the abstract about Christian unity, but here Paul gives us something concrete to see unity in action. These are what we would call lay people, And yet they're responsible for the bulk of what's happening in the church. Paul is is referring to them as, as leaders, as organizers, as sustainers of the church. Some of them are men. Some of them are women. Some of them are Jewish. Some of them are Gentiles. And God is working in all of them and using all of them to build the church. We can learn from their example. We can learn how to regard one another by thinking about how they regarded each other. I love the fact that these greetings are here, even though, honestly, I'm not the kind of person, if I were writing a letter, who would, who would do this sort of thing. The hardest part of writing a book, and in my opinion, is the acknowledgments, where you have to thank all of the people. And, and I've always struggled over things like that. It's hard to thank other people for your work. You know, you want to claim all the credit for yourself. Well, Paul takes time out and and gives greeting to all these people, like, like showing an affection for them that their part in the church is is worthy of acknowledgement. I think the reason for this is is the encouragement. But it's encouraging to the saints in Rome to see the apostle Paul calling out those among them who are the pillars of their community. Having those contributions seen and recognized by the apostle is an encouragement to everyone to see that the people who are amongst us, those who serve with us, that their gifts are being used by Christ and being recognized by his apostle. 
Like the goodness of it is being seen. It's an encouragement to everyone, even from afar. And I think it's true for us as well, that we are encouraged by one another's examples. And we're encouraged when, when the work that is being done by those who serve us is recognized, is acknowledged. There's also something here that strikes me about the warmth of the greetings. I know, again, a lot, a lot of our vision of this has to be speculative. But, but when I see this and I see all the greetings at the end, I kind of imagine it's like everybody knows in Corinth, Paul's writing a letter. He's writing a letter to the Romans. And, and you hear a little, like, I think it's going to be a long one. He's really getting into some deep stuff here. When is this letter going to wrap up? But at a certain point, maybe Tertius tells the guys, I think we're winding down. I think this is it. It's, it's the greetings. And everybody kind of gathers around. It's like, well, well, hey, hey, I'd like to get in there. Tell them I said hello. Tell them I said hello. There's something about that desire to communicate over that distance that I think speaks to the warmth of affection between all these people who'd risked their necks for one another, who had done feats for one another that are no longer remembered and yet created this sense of a bond, a, a tie to one another, where they want to be involved in that greeting. And I think that too is a lesson to us. Like Paul's love for them shows us an affection that we should have for one another, that we should be mindful of the sacrifices of others and love them for it. Love them for it. I think that eagerness is one that we can share, that desire to, to recognize the gifts and contributions of others, to, to let people know that their service is appreciated. I think he's part of the heart of this. It's clear, too, if you look at the, the, that final greeting, that final awkward greeting, the kissing part. Now, kids, if you want to cover your ears right now, we're going to talk about kissing for a moment. Um, greet one another with a holy kiss. Things are getting pretty affectionate. I remember as a kid reading that part in the Bible and, and hoping that's not the part we're going to be preaching on. Like, you don't want to come to church and find out the pastor's got a conviction now that we haven't been kissing enough. You know, and maybe, maybe you'd love that, in which case I'm the wrong pastor because it makes me uncomfortable, you know, to think about this. But, but imagine the affection that was baked into the life of the church and this act of greeting, extending hospitality, acknowledging one another's presence was a loving act, but also a holy one, right? This is not just a kiss for the sake of greeting. It's, it's holy, it's sanctified. It's a recognition not only of my love for you, but my acknowledgement of your holiness, of your set-apartness, your sanctification. They had not just an affection for each other, but a sense for what God was doing in, in one another, that, that God was working in them and that there was a, a, a spiritual life that God was kindling within. And they honored it in one another, and that's what's behind that greeting. Loving one another means supporting those who serve with us. When we talk about the importance of being called to love one another, it means supporting one another. If you've been called by Christ, then you've been called to serve. It's as simple as that. The tragedy is we often don't see it that way, right? Too often we see the community that Christ has built as another kind of service provider, so that we look at church and we regard church and we, we evaluate it 
based on whether or not it gives us something. We choose a community based on what it can do for us, not based on what we can contribute to it, how we can build it. And by the same token, we leave a community because it's not doing anything for us. And it's not just churches. The people that we are right now, this is what we do in all of our relationships. We've come to believe that the purpose of our relationships is to have our needs met. And if they're not met, see you later. It never occurs to us that these relationships were not given to us so that we might receive something from them, but rather that we've been given these relationships so that we might give. I'm sure you've had this experience before. I know I have. Certainly as a pastor, you're conscious of these things where uh, in a small community like ours, when someone comes along who seems to have great gifts, you're always hoping, oh, finally, God, you've brought me someone to help build the church. And then when you see people like that leave and realize that, that in their mind, they weren't here to contribute. They were here to be like contributed to. It's a tragedy, but it's not a tragedy for the church. It's a tragedy for us because we didn't understand the kind of thing God gave us when he gave us this community, that he gave it to us not as something to serve us, but as something to serve. Think about that. What if you're not here to receive anything? What if you're not here to receive? What if you're here to give? What if you're here to serve? Maybe you're not here because of what we have. Maybe you're here because of what we don't have. And that's why God has brought you here to serve with us. It's something to think about. Well, how do you support those who serve with us? I think it's simple. And if you think about our mission statement, it's kind of baked into that. That that supporting those who serve with us, being conscious and acknowledging that work, is as simple as as a few questions. I'll give them to you. First of all, are you finding more? Are you finding more? Every member of our community, I hope, I pray, is finding more grace, more depth, more community, more of what Christ has for us. It all begins with finding more. If you remember that, that seeking, finding, sharing. Like serving is sharing, but it's really hard to share something you've never found. It's it's a good recipe for burnout to try to share a grace that you've never experienced yourself. So we have to start there. Are we finding more? Are the people who serve with us finding the grace that they long for? And if not, how can we help them do that? Another question, are you using your gifts? Are you using your gifts? The reason Christ gave you those gifts is so that you might have something to contribute. But it's important to find ways to use your specific gifts. There are ways we can all serve. Certain things everyone is is fit to do, but there are also things you might be uniquely suited to based on how God has shaped you and formed you. It's important to find those things. And a way to support those who serve with us is to help them discover the way to use their gifts for Christ. Third question, are you weary in well-doing? One of the ways to care for those who serve with us is to be conscious of the fact that you can grow weary in well-doing. Sometimes it's as easy as looking at the wrong metrics, looking at the wrong results. You come out discouraged because you think, well, we're not seeing what we ought to see. 
Sometimes we help those who serve with us by reminding them what the real measure ought to be. That it's what Christ is doing in our hearts, what he is building among us in our hearts that matters. Let's point one another to the right things. That's a good way to encourage one another. Paul says to the Romans, all the churches of Christ greet you. There's a well-wishing, there's an affection that all the churches of Christ throughout history have for one another. And part of it involves recognizing that we've been called to serve and that that service is a holy calling. Jesus showed us the way on this. Jesus transformed all power, all authority, and turned it into service. He who was foremost was determined to humble himself, to become last in order to serve those who he was much better than. And in doing that, he showed us how to serve. He also brought us together to serve him, to serve him side by side. And that's what you see happening in Romans 16. And that's what you see happening here at Grace. And you see it happening in the larger church as well. Our names won't be remembered by history The sacrifices that we made won't necessarily be recorded. They're not for that. But God knows, and we know. So let's love one another as we serve him, and let's encourage those who serve with us. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.